them with you, but you know what? They're going to sound so foreign to you that you're going to forget them. And I can give you principles and the mechanics of how to do this, how to not to do that. And I'll share that with you. But if that's as far as you get, there are a lot of theologians that miss the Word of God by a mile. They don't understand the spirit of it. They don't understand the message of it. And they surely don't understand the inspiration. So just learning the mechanics doesn't get you in the car and drive, right? So I also want to bring you to a place of how to meditate in the Word of God so that you're walking with the Spirit to get as much out of it as you can. So how many of you remember that God told Moses to set his people free, right? And Moses said, how am I supposed to do that? And God said, what is that in your hand? Now there's the mechanics. Take that rod and, and, and whenever you're in trouble, you lift it up and uh, it'll do some good work for you, right? All right, so that's the mechanics, but what did Moses say? I'm not going anywhere unless you go with me. And that's the meditation part. So when you go to the Word of God, you're to present yourself to the Lord. You remember 2 Timothy 3.16, present yourself to the Lord, a workman, not ashamed, uh, rightly dividing the Word of God. So you present yourself to God. You get your toolbox out. You learn how to render a scripture properly, but then you need to move into how to meditate on a scripture. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, mechanics and meditating. So let me review with you. You all have uh, some notes. Let's review from last week. The first initial principle of hermeneutics. All right, fancy word. Hermeneutics means the science of interpreting scripture. How to interpret scripture. It's, It's called hermeneutics. So the first law of that is What is the primary intent? What was the original intent of the author? Remember, we broke up into groups last week. The first question I asked each group was, what is that specifically saying to the audience? Who wrote it, and what was he saying? Who was he writing to? Okay? That's essential. You can't get off on that. There was a period in time in history where everything was metaphor and analogy, especially in the Dark Ages. They'd read Scripture. They'd have no basis of context. Everything they read had some mystical meaning, some analogy, something this and that. Now, you can't hold on to anything. It's got some mystical meaning to you and some mystical meaning to me. That doesn't do any of us any good, right? Some hold on to it that only the priests and those who have the anointing can interpret Scripture. Is that what Peter did when Peter wrote, when when John wrote, when James wrote? They expected all of their readers to understand what they were saying. Now, I understand that the Holy Spirit can use these things and that there's depth and layer to all this, but there is an original intent that the author had that he wanted his audience to understand, right? And that's where we must start. That's where we must start. We must always first ground yourself in knowing Who is speaking? Is it James? Is it John? Is it Moses? Is it David? And who's he speaking to? Is it Israel? Is it to the uh, Gentiles? Is it to kings? Is it to the common people? Is it to an army? Is it poetry? Is it a parable? Find the initial intent of what is being said. Secondly, what's the context? We, we, We love sound bites. We all memorize scriptures. You know how we memorize scriptures? We memorize a verse. Most of us don't memorize scriptures. (laughs) We memorize a verse, like a fortune cookie. Now, God bless you for memorizing a verse. We need to memorize verses. But how many of you know that a verse can be taken out of 
context. Let me give you a quick illustration. Uh, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing in your lap. How many of you know that from the Gospel of Luke, right? Your blessings be pressed down, shaken, shaken together, overflowing in your lap. Now how often, what do you usually hear that associated with? Money. Do you know that that portion of Scripture in Luke has nothing to do with money? What does it have to do with? Does anybody remember? Relationships. Yeah, look it up when you get home. <laughs> it has everything to do with the people that you relate with, and it'll come back to you, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. And it has everything to do with late relationship. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with money. Though we may go further and say the law of reciprocity, what you sow, you reap, hundredfold, thirtyfold, and so forth. But it is not a lesson on money. But that would be taking something out of context, and you'll hear it all the time on TV and different things. People put all sorts of teachings together on a single verse, many times out of context. How do we find the context? Anybody? Right, very good. You both got it. Read the verses before and the verses after that. That way it sits in the flow of understanding what's going on. And then you said cross-referencing. We're going to co cover cross-referencing -re next week, because I can't pronounce it tonight. So next week, we'll do cross-referencing. Not crosswords, cross-referencing. Uh, does anybody have an idea? What is cross-referencing, anyways? Other scriptures, and yeah, good, good, to verify. And, and scripture interprets scripture, okay? All right, but we'll do that next week. So we're just in a review tonight. We always want to understand the primary intent. What's the original intent of the writer? Secondly, what is the context of what I'm studying? And then last of all, we got into idioms and culture, right? So there are idioms in Greek culture, Roman culture, uh, uh, Hebrew culture that we need to understand. Let me give you some examples, another example. How many of you remember when Paul said to be kind and loving to your neighbors, even your enemies, it's as heaping hot coals on their heads. Yeah. Do you remember that? Right? And so what we think is, oh, kill them with kindness. Just be nice to people who aren't nice to you, and it's just going to tear them up. They're going to hate it, and you're going to just, it's like putting hot coals on their head. Now, that's, that is a Hebrew idiom and a cultural idiom or a cultural understanding of what he means by heaping hot coals on the head. He's not saying, love your enemy and in the meantime, stick it to him good. That's not his intention. What it means to heap hot coals on the head is back then when you needed your fire lit and your fire went out, you would go to your neighbor and they would put hot coals in a, in a bin that you'd carry on your head back to your house so that you could have fire in your house too. In other words, go the extra mile for them. So even when they're opposed to you, you would be willing to share your fire. All right? That... Sharing your fire is life and death for some folks, right? So that's what it means. And so we need to understand idioms and cultural ideas that will help us understand in word meanings. Okay, we kind of went over that last week. I'll keep drilling that into you, and, and we'll keep working on that. And then I'm also going to show you some of the books and tools that you can use to look up manners and customs 
and so forth. But I'll tell you what, with Google, with, with the internet, uh, you've got it all at your fingertips. It's amazing. All right, just be careful what you Google. Okay. Now, <laughs> let's go on to mechanics and meditation. I want to teach you tonight two important words, uh, exegesis and isogesis. All right? Now, that Jesus is not referencing our Lord and Savior. It's a Greek word. Exogesis is to draw out what the text means. To exegete a passage means what is this passaging, what does this passage mean in its context, in its intent, and what is it speaking clearly? All right? Isogesis is when I put something into the meaning from me or from you. All right? You have a presupposition in your mind and you go look for a verse to prove it. Right? You read something and as you're interpreting it, well, it seems right to me. All right? I think it means this. I think it means that. We're going to do some trials on this. But what you have to do is you have to clear... Uh, your heart and mind from any distortions or presuppositions and learn what is the word saying to me. And I have to be free enough to understand that it might be rebuking me, it might be teaching me. I may have had this wrong. Okay? So that's the simple understanding of exegesis and isogesis. Now, let's, let's take a quick look here at the two ideas. Let me give you an example, okay? Revelation 9, 8 and 9. It's on your outline there. Revelation 9, 8 and 9 says this, They had hair like the hair of women, and teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like that sound of chariots and many horses rushing to battle. The ice of Jesus, in other words, what someone came away saying this meant was, this is heavy metal rock bands. In the last days, heavy metal music is like this. They look like they have women's hair and sharp teeth like animals. Look at Kiss. They have breastplates and armor on. This means heavy metal music, and we've got to watch out for heavy metal musicians. <laughs> Now, what I'm quoting to you is an actual interpretation from a preacher, okay? So, that would be a clear example of isogesis. In other words, he's putting something into that scripture. Do you think John on the Isle of Patmos, when he wrote this and had this vision, was thinking of heavy battle bands? So, what is the exogesis? What is that scripture saying? What is it telling us? Anybody think? Let's put it in context. Let's take a quick look. Let's see what it says. Let's see what the passage is telling us. Well, let's see. Let's go a little bit before it. It says, The fifth angel blew a trumpet. He opened the bottomless pit, and what came out of it were uh, locusts on the earth. They had the power of scorpions on the earth, and uh, they were told not to harm the grass or the trees. They were allowed to torment the people for five months, but not kill them. Then it describes what they look like. They have a king as over them as the angel of the bottomless pit. What would you say these are a reference to? Demons. Demon spirits released out of the bottomless pit 
When you read the context of it, that's exactly what this is a reference to. Demonic spirits in the last days at the great time of the tribulation that are going to be loosed in the spirit realm. And this is what John saw them as they looked like. Ferocious creatures, right? So what's the difference in this situation between exo-Jesus and iso-Jesus? It's big, isn't it? It's a real big difference, right? The one, you don't, don't be afraid of heavy metal people. They're not going to chew your head off, right? You mean, I'm not in favor of the music and so forth, but they're not in that verse. This is a, a totally different thing, right? Would you agree? Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's use another reference. Let's get another example here. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now let me give you an example of iso-Jesus with that verse. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, taking up rock climbing and I'm going to ascend uh, a, an extremely high peak and I think I can do it. I'm not going to train that hard because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I feel that that's something I've always wanted to do and I feel that the Lord's telling me because I read that verse and it says I can do all things so I am going to go climb the Grand Canyon next week. Mount Everest, why not? I'm there. Yeah. All right. Now, doesn't, isn't that what that verse says? I can do all things, all things through Christ Jesus. Am I right? Is that what it says? That's my eyes Give me an exegesis. Read the scripture. Let's read what he's talking about. Let's read the context. Theo. Very good. That's the exegesis. When you read what he says is, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been through all these things. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Christ's sufficiency, right. And the all things he's talking about is the persecution for your faith that you're living through. We can sustain through whatever comes our way, and we can do this, folks. It's not about, you know, climbing Mount Everest or doing this or whatever you think you want to do. God's going to give you superpowers. Yeah, where'd you get that from? Scripture reference, though, you know, you know exactly what you're talking about. Where'd you get that from? Yes? Yes? Where was that at? Very good. <laughs> it was the temptation, right? Satan tempted Jesus. Very good. Now, what did you just do? Cross-referenced. Perfect. That's what you do when you get a scripture and you can cross-reference it. That's exactly right. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's what Jesus said to Lucifer when he wanted him, hey, just jump off this steeple. Jesus easily could have done that. He didn't need an angel to help him. But he said, tempt not the Lord thy God. Okay, so clear example of iso-Jesus versus exo-Jesus. Think of X as X marks the spot. This is what the Word of God is saying, Okay. And so we've got to be careful with that. Have any of you heard people have wrong quotations and wrong uh, understanding of Scripture, right? Because they're putting their opinions in. 
We don't want to add to the Word of God. We want to understand and draw out what it's saying. Let's go on. Another one, Revelation 3.15. You've heard me preach on this a gazillion times. I know your works. They're neither hot nor cold. I would that you would either be hot or cold. Because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Okay? Isogesis. You know what this means? Hot and cold. We understand hot and cold means on fire for Jesus. Cold means that you don't love him. Jesus is saying, I would rather have you on fire for me or lost and cold. But if you're lukewarm, saved but doing nothing, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. How many of you have heard it preached like that? Right? Okay. What is Jesus saying here? Let's look at the exegesis. Go to the scripture, put it in context, read it out. What do you think he's saying? Does it make sense, first of all, that Jesus would rather have you lost than saved? <clears throat> that doesn't make sense, does it? No. In fact, a little further on in that scripture, what does he say he does to those whom he loves? Yeah. He disciplines, he chastises those whom he loves. So he's, if he said, I'd rather have you lost, why would he tell them, I love you, and I have to spank you, I have to discipline you? So spewing you out of his mouth doesn't mean he's casting you out of the kingdom. We know that because we read it in context. He loves these people. He loves the Laodiceans. So what is he getting at? I'd rather have you hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Now, what would help with this is some historical context, location. And so this is where we need to spend a little time. When you don't understand something, we'll go to our tools. We'll look up some historical context. Laodicea was far from any rivers or any water. They had to use an aqueduct system. And so in order to have an aqueduct system, the water from the cool springs would go th over the land through the aqueduct system, and by the time it got to them, it was what? Lukewarm. It was not cool and refreshing. You had to heat it up to purify it because of all the parasites that it picked up along the way. So if it was cold from the spring, it would be fresh and clean. If it was hot, it would be purified. But if it's lukewarm, pfft, it became the temperature that surrounded it. It's an analogy. It's an analogy. I want you cold and refreshing or hot and warming, but if you're lukewarm, how many of you remember gym class, right? You're sweating a slab of storm and you go to the fountain. At least at my school, we'd go to the fountain, you'd turn the fountain on and it was warm water. Right? Don't you spit out? How many of you have been really wanting something cold to drink and it's like, ah, all right? So it has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It's not about, I wish you were lost. I don't want you. He, he loves them. It's an analogy. It's a picture that says, you as a church, you've become the same temperature of the world around you. You're no longer hot on fire for me. You're no longer cool and satisfying to me. You've become like the world. Exactly. Very good. Marlowe just pointed out that the whole point and the whole context of this passage is, I know your works. We're in the King James. I know your deeds. So what was he judging? 
their work as a church, their deeds, what they were doing for him. He's saying, they're, you think you're rich, you think you're amazing, you think you're great, but you're naked and poor and blind. You're not doing kingdom work. It looked like the world. That's what he was saying. That's the context. That's the exogesis, not the isogesis. Okay? Let's do another one. You with me? All right. Ezekiel 18.20. All right, this is a tough one. Wow. I hope we make it out of here tonight. The, the soul who sins shall die. According to this scripture, every one of you is going to die. Well, of course, we knew that, right? We all will eventually die. But this verse says the soul who sins, if you sin, you're going to die. So I don't know how. might expect some of you to keel over right now. Right? I'm not reading anything into that. I mean, it says, I'm taking it literal. It says the soul who sins will die. So what are we going to do with that verse? All right, but even in the Old Testament, if a Jew sinned, did he immediately die? Okay, but you're right. Context of covenants. Somebody find the passage and help me understand. What? You didn't have the passage. You have the passage. Read the passage. Now read that verse and what comes after it. Real loud. All right, one more. Go ahead. Okay, now we have context. What does it mean? Everybody's responsible for themselves. That the father sins, the son is not going to come under the condemnation of the father's sin. He's living a righteous life. He will not die because of the father's sin. Every soul that sins dies. In other words, accountable for each person. My child won't die because of my sin. That's, that puts a whole new light on it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Takes away generational curse. All right, but do you see, immediately when you put it in context, it's like, oh my gosh, that's a whole new understanding of the verse. All it's saying is, I'm not going to inherit or the punishment or, or the condemnation for my father's sin. I'm responsible for my own. Amen. Yep. They're the one who will reap the punishment for their own sin and not upon their children. It shall not visit upon their children. 
Yes. Well, the sin, it talks specifically about the sin unto death. And we'll have to talk about that. Yeah, cross-reference, very good, again. I want you to get used to this cross-referencing. That's why it's important, even when you're reading Scripture. How many of you are reading the Bible through in a year? There's a lot of folks who, who go through that plan. Okay. And sometimes, it's hard because you're reading a psalm, you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading the New Testament. It's hard to put all that together. And, and sometimes you're feeling like, well, I'm just reading to read. That's okay, read to read. Because what will happen is you're storing up, you're, you're, you're knowing these scriptures. Later on, when you come a passage, you'll be able to cross-reference. Oh, wasn't that this? Wasn't that that? Oh, I remember this. Right? And so the more ability you have to cross-reference scripture the stronger it knits the fabric of your doctrine and theology. You'll have a better understanding. So don't get discouraged from just reading. Um, that's helpful too. All right, now, these are some mechanics. I'm going to teach you a little bit of the mechanics, exegesis, eisegesis. Gave you an explanation of that. But I want to share a few stories with you because if I only teach you the, the wrenches, the screwdrivers, and the saw, you're not going to enjoy what you've built. <laughs> Right? And so just knowing the tools, uh, uh, just learning scales on a piano will not get you into song and the beauty of it. So I want to move from the mechanics, teach you a little bit at a time. I taught you tonight about eisegesis, putting into a scripture. We don't want to do that. We only want to take out what it is saying to us. Now I want to help you understand how to do that through meditating on it. Okay? I want to share with you a couple passages, uh, a couple stories. One is that um, an experience I've shared before, but it was life-changing for me, so I'm going to share it again. Uh, it's been about six years ago now. I was ministering in China to the underground church, and it's a long story. I'll keep it very brief. But um, I was to, the Lord told me that I was to facilitate His presence, and uh, I didn't exactly know what that meant. And so I was there teaching 26 different pastors. And when I got there, uh, on the long flight to get there, I really began to panic. And I thought, I better have something to share with them. So we were on the uh, border between Kazakhstan and China, way in the northwest. They're ready to move into the Muslim territory. And I thought, you know what, what I should do is share with them on the deity of Jesus Christ. And I began to look at the scriptures that proved the deity of Jesus and go through a systematic study of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so when I got there and uh, we began our session early in the morning, we're off in a deserted farmhouse where no one could find us, supposedly. And then I began to share and teach on the deity of Jesus Christ. And it was as dry as a cracker, and it, and it, and it flew about two feet and crashed. It was nothing. And uh, I panicked. We took a break. My translator panicked. We all thought, what's going on? He, he said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. And through some tears and crying and travailing for God to give us an understanding of what's going on, I realized I was coming from a Western mind. And, and I want to share with us, uh, you folks, uh, us, we have a Western mindset. 
The Western mindset is built upon Greek thought that says this, then that, then this, everything follows in an order, in a row, and two plus two is this and that and this and that. It's very structured. It's very linear. All right? This book is written from an Eastern mindset. All right, where it looks at the whole, it looks at an understanding of, of everything. And uh, what I began to realize is they don't need me to proof text to them the deity of Jesus. What they need is the presence of Jesus in that room. He will prove his deity to them. It was a completely mind shift. We're all about reasoning, we're all about intelligence. That's why science is winning in this argument of God or science, faith or science, because we've all been groomed on this God called science of reason and intellect. Can I tell you, our intellect is so limited, and what science has become is just another faith. But what I began to do, I went back in there and I said, I've shown you from scriptures the deity of Jesus Christ. I pray I didn't take too long on that. Let's now invite the presence of Jesus so that he can prove his deity. And let us pray for healing. And God broke through amazing and ministered and ministered for hours. I didn't have to teach. He's teaching his presence. And that's the difference between mechanics and uh, uh, the idea of meditating upon the word of God. Now, the Hebrew concept and the Hebrew word for meditation is a, is a word that means to uh, regurgitate. All right? Cows, it, it's the word for cows chewing their cud. Right? Okay, so anybody here know how a cow chews its cud? It, it collects grass, right? It's chewing on the grass, chews it up, spins it in a little ball in its mouth, and swallows it in one of its stomachs, all right? A little bit later, it burps it back up, <laughs> little snack, and chews on it, all right? And so the concept for meditation is taken directly from an illustration. That's what I'm talking about, the Hebrew mindset. It's very earthy. It's very real. It's very much there. It's not esoteric. Well, it is esoteric. But I mean, it's, it's spiritual, but I mean, it, it's grounded in things you can understand. So to meditate on the Word of God is to chew on it, to let all of the, the juices of that Scripture get, flow into you. And so I want to share with you some quotes from uh, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, an amazing orator, uh, a man, if you've ever read any of his sermons, I, one of the things that's amazing about Charles Spurgeon is his audience knew scripture. They understood the word of God. So he could flip from one story reference to another story reference and everybody knew and followed. Today, I can't do that. Because many of the folks who have gotten saved have no clue who Noah is. They don't even know who Cain and Abel are. They don't know the story of Balaam and the talking donkey. They don't, folks don't have these references, so I have to slowly kind of shape them. Where at this day, in this hour, when everybody understood Scripture, he went with it. 
Now, just for another example, was when I was uh, with the Chinese believers, they memorized scripture. Not a verse. Books. And they knew the Bible. And I remember when I was trying to look up a verse, and I said, oh, it's in a psalm. It's, it's that verse that says about, uh, I've hidden thy word in my heart. And I, uh, like that, four Chinese students went, that's psalm. Da, 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 da. All right. I'm good with that. A living lexicon, right? It's amazing. Now, what, this is what Charles Spurgeon says about meditating on the Word. I like this. He says, I quarry out the truth when I read, but I smelt the ore and get the pure gold out of it when I meditate. So he does the work. He does the mechanics. He'll read a passage. He'll put it in context. And he's got the, the excavating done. And then what he says through meditation, I melt that thing down. I think about it. And, and what is precious rises to the top. And, and so I smelt the precious metal out of it. He goes on, he says, I often find it very profitable to, go, to get a text as a sweet morsel under my tongue in the morning and to keep the flavor of it, if I can, in my mouth all day. I like that too. So, so in the morning, uh, I encourage you to do this. Uh, is, uh, that's why our daily bread, a devotional, whatever, just, uh, or, or get into the Word of God. Just, and don't worry about how much you read. Just read something and put it under your tongue and all day long. You're just chewing on that thing. And you'll be surprised at the at different times when you're thinking about it. You'll see it in front of your eyes in a situation. Or God will give you a, a, an idea and a thought on that thing that you never even thought of when you first read it. And he just puts a, an amazing understanding in on it. That's the power of meditation because who are you meditating with? The Holy Spirit, the author of this pass of this book. Now I like he says read the Bible carefully and then meditate and meditate and then meditate. This is a problem for our culture. We don't take the time to meditate. How often do you see anybody sitting without a cell phone or a pad or or something in their ears? Right? Well, I like listening to music while I meditate. Could I encourage you to shut everything off? Everything down. It's a lost art. Um, could I encourage you to thank God when you're at the doctor's office and he'll say it's just 10 minutes and you know it'll be an hour and a half? <laughs> meditate on the Word of God. If you got your phone, pull out your Bible, read it, and stop. That's another thing. We always like to accomplish things. So we read, 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 read as much as we can. We read, 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 read as much as we can. Just read a little bit. Put it down and meditate on that word. It's rich. Let it meditate. I remember listen, uh, I was in a doctor's office. And of course, you know doctor's offices, right? You either get home and garden or field and stream. Who reads those magazines? Some of you do, sorry, okay. Well, I don't. <laughs> so I'm, you're sitting there, you have time to kill. I remember picking up a field and stream, and I thought, 
better than Red Book. I don't know. I'm just going to read Field and Stream. So, and then this guy, he, he did nature walks. He, he, he was, uh, uh, what do you call those guys? I don't know, a ranger, camp ranger, you know, and he took people on nature walks. And he's saying, how to take a nature walk? Okay, whatever. Uh, so I'm reading this, and he says, you, you don't set your destination. If you want to get the most out of your nature walk, you never set your destination in the sense that I'm going to walk two miles or I'm going to walk for two hours. He says, I never do that because he said, there are times when I begin my nature walk and within the first 20 steps, I find a marvel. I find something that is awesome and wondrous. And I stop and consider that. You see, if, I, if, if you say, I'm going to read 13 chapters today, you're not going to stop after verse 7 because God's speaking a wonderful thing to you because you've said it in your heart, I've got to read all those chapters. But if you'll go for this walk with Jesus, it might be the first 10 verses you find something. It may be seven chapters later that you find something. But when you find the thing that lights up, close the book, meditate, meditate, meditate. Consider, consider, consider. Come, let us reason together. I, I want to encourage you to do that. You'll get very, very creative. Last quote from Charles Spurgeon. So we must, by meditation, tread the clusters of truth if we would get the wine of consolation therefrom. In other words, the clusters of fruit, the grapes, that's the word of God. But if you want the most the exegete out of the most of the Word of God, you take the grape of that Word and you crush it. And you crush it so that the wine or the juices come out. That's meditation. That's when we begin to delight in God's law. We delight in God's Word. How do you think the Psalms were written? Read the Psalms. They're all meditations on the Lord, about the Lord. But he wrote them as meditations when he considered the Lord. When I consider the earth and man that you have made. When I consider your ways. When I consider. It's meditation. And I'm not talking about Eastern meditation. Oh, where you try to empty your mind of all things. Christianity is quite the opposite. You know, Buddhism and Hinduism is emptying your mind to be one with the eternal's nothingness till you eliminate your identity to nothingness. Christianity is the complete opposite of that, saying, fill your mind with me, every thought, every fiber of your being. Learn of me. Learn of my ways. So meditate, meditate, meditate. Now, we're going to go into our uh, groups here, but first I want to share with you what happens with the sense of meditating on Scripture. When you take your tools to properly exegete, keep the context, cross-reference, learn the cultural aspect to it, and then you begin to meditate and savor on its goodness, what I want you to learn is the power of story. The power of story. There's a story here. Stories are powerful. Um, I was listening to a lecture today on the power of stories. Everything is bought and sold by story. We elect presidents by their story. We, we elect officials by what is their story. Why do you think they take ads out on TV? And why, do you, why don't they just say, vote for me? 
They have a story. They have a perception that you build a story on these people. How many of you watch TV, watch movies, listen to radio? Their story. Our news programs are not news. They're stories. They give you the depth and the emotion of what happened because there was a flood and this woman couldn't get out of her car and they show you pictures. It's a story. Story is powerful. There's so much story here. God is telling a story through human beings because He knows it activates your intelligence and your emotional response to get the fullness of your response. So what you need to look at is what is this story about? What is this about? Secondly, what's the lesson in it for me? Why is, there, why is this story being spoken? And what is it for me? And last of all, how is that relevant in the story of my life? You want to be good at witnessing to people? You want to share Jesus with people? Use the Hebrew mindset. Tell them the story and say why, why that story can become their story and draw them in by the story of it. Not the Western Greek mindset that I can prove to you that Jesus is this, Jesus is that, and according to this scripture, he's this, and this scripture, that. They don't even know the scriptures. They could care less. You're telling them the equation to gasoline. They have no idea what that is. They don't know the structure of, of the moon and the distance. Who cares? I like the moon. It's pretty. Tell them the story of Jesus and how it's relevant to their life. Some folks, you're going to have to get into the, to the actual uh, deeper things. But, so this is what I wanted to share with you tonight. The tools and the meditation. The mechanics and the meditation. Remember your mechanics. Be a workman, rightly dividing, doing it properly. But remember the meditation, the heart of it, and how to share that heart. Amen? You with me? Then say amen. amen. Okay, thank you. Because if you didn't, I'd keep going. So, amen? <laughs> now you're all confused. Should we let him go on or not? All right. What we're going to do is like we did last time. Uh, we're going to break up into groups.